In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God. Usually in the summertime, I preach an ongoing series, and uh, when I was planning out the coming months, I saw that our gospel readings that started today, and then going through all of August, are from John chapter 6. And John chapter 6 is an incredibly important chapter in all of the gospels. There is a lot in there. So for the next few weeks, we are going to focus specifically on those readings, and we're going to do, hopefully, a little bit of a deep dive. So we're starting a new series this morning called The Bread of Life. So those of you who are in our Wednesday night Bible study, there's another plug for that, um, will find that some of what we're going to cover today familiar, as we just covered this, well, a similar story to this in the Gospel of Mark, Chapter 6. It covers these two stories we're about to look at today. And so, we have to remember that when John is writing this, he's writing this to people who have not seen Jesus. He's writing this to people who have not had an interaction with Jesus the way he and the disciples and the other people who followed Jesus in that same way. And I can't remember where I heard this, but in his gospel, Jesus says in chapter 20, I think it's when he's talking to Thomas, um, he appeared, you know, Tom, you know the story, Thomas says, I'm not going to believe if Jesus, that Jesus rose from the dead, and I was like, I put my fingers in, the, in, in his hands and in his side. And so Jesus appears to them, he's like, hey Thomas, it's me, put your fingers in my hands. This is, this is a real thing here, this really happens. And then he says, uh, Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that's all of us, right? Even people that John's writing to as well have not seen Jesus the way that, that he and the other apostles did. But John also says this in John chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So even though we haven't seen we have seen John's testimony. And in reading his gospel, we are in some way seeing Jesus. Even though we're not seeing him necessarily with our physical eyes, we're seeing him with our spiritual eyes, with the eyes of our faith and our faithfulness. And in doing so, we come to have life in him. And the sixth chapter of John testifies to that truth unequivocally. So today in the reading this morning, you heard of the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water. So at the beginning of John chapter 6 here, it's told us that Jesus goes away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. A large crowd follows him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So in the Roman world, the politically savvy people knew how to gain support for themselves, even if it meant not actually doing anything to solve the problems of the populace whose support they were trying to win. There was an expression back then, bread and circuses. And what that meant was that the population are easily distracted by being given free food as well as bloody entertainments like the games so popular of the era. If we could just give them a little bit to eat, and if we could keep them entertained, 
They'll love us, and we won't actually have to do anything to make their lives better. It's amazing how nothing's really changed in our time. We still, you know, distract ourselves with cheap entertainment, streaming movies, games, phone on our phones all the time, ordering from DoorDash, ebooks, audiobooks, all that stuff. We distract ourselves with so many th different things. And when that happens, we kind of lose track of our souls. And we see the people here with a similar attitude. Jesus crosses the Sea of Galilee. He sees this large crowd following him. But notice the reason why. They saw the signs he was doing on the sick. Now you might be thinking to yourself, well, wasn't that part of his ministry? Like, what's the big deal if people hear about his miracles and then seek him out? And that's a really good question if you were thinking that. And I think we see the answer in verse 15. But it doesn't say explicitly that the people are here out of some shallow reason, right, to see a wonder worker. But that rationale does show up in other places in the Gospel of John. So I don't think it's a stretch here to say that they could be, that that attitude underlies their motivation to follow him. They want to see something amazing. They've heard stories, if you just stick around this guy long enough, you're going to see something really cool. St. Augustine makes the point that, that miracles like the ones that Jesus are about to, is about to perform, they look bigger than what they actually are. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, taking five loaves and two fish and feeding a crowd of 5,000 men, which means there are actually women and children, so there are more people there than just the 5,000, that's actually a really big deal. But it's interesting. St. Augustine notes that it looks like a big deal because we can see, it's a miracle we can see with our eyes. But a bigger miracle is how God runs the entire universe. That's actually a bigger miracle, but this looks bigger because it's something that can actually be seen. We also hear it's the time of the Passover, probably the most important holy day for the Jewish calendar, along with the Day of Atonement. And we have to remember, right, that Passover is the day or the night when God rescued his people out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Right? We read the story of the ten plagues, and we forget that the ten plagues are ten judgments against the false gods of Egypt. And then at the final plague, how they were protected from death is by taking the blood of the lamb and putting it on their doorposts, followed then by the cooking and the eating of the lamb. They didn't just kill the lamb, take the blood, put it on the doorpost, and then throw the lamb away. They took it, and they cooked it, and then they ate it. So this is kind of what's swirling behind the scenes when we get to this chapter here in John 6. So right around this time, Jesus has a large crowd of people. He goes up to a mountain, he sees the people, and he, he comes down. So in the Old Testament, this is meant to remind us of the Exodus story, right? Who goes up the mountain in the book of Exodus? Moses. And what happens when Moses goes up to the mountain? He meets God, and he receives the commandments. I expect all of my Mark students to be shouting out these answers while I'm preaching, okay? So Phyllis, if I don't hear anything from you, we're going to chat later, okay? So besides the Passover story, the events of the Exodus story are also kind of swirling around in the air here. We're meant to notice that, particularly because of how these two stories play out. So Jesus then, he, he, he feeds the people. 
right? So he sees this crowd approaching, and he asks one of his disciples, Philip, what should he do to feed them? Now, Jesus already knows what he's going to do, but he's using the opportunity to test Philip and the other disciples, too. And it's sort of like a question that we ask that we already know the answer to. Have you ever had that experience? Like the other day, Isaac and Sophia were playing in the playroom, and I was in the kitchen. And um, I'm doing my thing, and they're playing nicely. And then all of a sudden, I hear a thump, and then I hear, ah, I hear a baby start to cry. So I come around the corner, and Isaac is standing there, and he has a, a flash card with dinosaurs on it in his one hand. And then I see Sophia, she's sitting on her butt on the carpet, sitting on her butt, ah, crying. So I walk around the corner, I see him holding the card, I see her crying on the ground, so I obviously know what happened. She was playing with his card, he took it away, and she fell down on her butt and started crying, maybe he pushed her and she fell down. So I already know what's happened. Well, what do I say to him when I come around the corner and I see the scene? What did you just do to your sister? He knows the answer to the question. He asks it anyway. To test them. Like, you've got to give your kids an opportunity to own up, right? And God even does this in Genesis. When Adam and Eve eat the fruit, God said, what did you do? And Adam's like, I don't know, this lady gave it to me. I don't know where she got it from. And Eve was like, well, no, this snake gave it to me. I don't know where he got it from. God's giving them an opportunity. He's testing them. Same thing here with Philip. Philip answers, 200 days wages aren't enough to cover the costs required to feed this massive group. And also, where the heck would they find a place with enough food to feed more than 5,000 people? There's no Costco back then. You can't buy anything in bulk. You can go to the markets and buy stuff, but they're not going to have enough bread and fish to feed a massive group like this. So Andrew, he kind of tries to help out a little bit. He says, well, this little kid over here, he's got like five barley loaves and two small fish. I, mean, I don't know. Now let me ask you a question. Why would Andrew bring this up? Is he being sarcastic? Is he trying to say, well, what do you want us to do, Jesus? And then throw a little bit of food at him and say, well, this is all we got, whatever. He's trying to make a point. Well, as it turns out, Andrew, and I think the apostles, and any, any good Jew of the day, would have been a, a remembered a particular story from the Old Testament. And this comes in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 42, 42 to 44. So in the story it says, A man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God, that's Elisha, bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left. So the servant set it before them, and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. Right? So there's already a story in the Old Testament where the prophet of God, Elisha, multiplies loaves for a group of people. So Andrew probably has this in his mind, right? In the story, barley loaves, and what, are the, what does the child have on him? Five barley loaves and two fish. So he, ha he probably has this story in mind. So, maybe this is part of the test too. Philip doesn't get it, but maybe Andrew did. 
But then he ruins it by saying, well, this is too many people, though. So Jesus says, seat the people on the grass, and they do. And then he gives thanks, and then Jesus breaks the bread and distributes it and the fish. Jesus is doing it himself in this version of the story. And Jesus sitting them on the grass, feeding them, should make us think about Psalm 23, verse 2. What does God do? He makes me to lie down where? Green pastures, right? Green grass. And after everyone is eaten, Jesus has his disciples gather up any leftovers so nothing goes to waste. And then they take 12 baskets full of leftovers. So Jesus has just demolished Elisha's former world record, right? So Guinness has Elisha, most food multiplied by a person, by a prophet of God. Jesus breaks that record. He destroys it. And this happens while he's journeyed to a mountain, which is in the wilderness. And he does all of this during the time of Passover. And to, to add to this, in Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses says to the people, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Right? So, in this Old Testament, Moses leads the people out of slavery at the Passover. He brings them to the mountain of God. He prays for food, and God provides manna from heaven that feeds all the people in the wilderness. But unlike that manna, this manna that Jesus is giving can be gathered and eaten, but it can also have some left over. Because the manna that Moses provided in the wilderness would die. It would get rotten. So what Jesus has done is, is basically, he's put up this giant, huge, neon, flashing sign that says, flashing like this. This is the prophet like Moses with a big arrow pointing down to himself. This is the prophet like Moses. Remember the one that Moses told you about that you've been waiting for? Here he is. And here's the thing. The people get it. The people understand. And they immediately make the connection. And then you think this is all well and good. Finally, somebody gets it. But look at what they try to do. They try to take Jesus and make him king. The commentator F.F. Bruce noted that the 5,000 men that were gathered here would have made a significant guerrilla fighting force that could have caused some major trouble for the Romans or for the, the if any troops were garrisoned there by the Sea of Galilee. There's enough people to cause a lot of trouble and to make Jesus king by force. So even though the people make the connection between Jesus and Moses. What they don't realize is that Jesus doesn't work through force. Jesus doesn't work through violence. And Jesus is already king. Jesus rules over all things. And his intention, and this is something that they continually get wrong, even after he resurrects, right? Even after he's resurrected from the dead, one of the disciples says, hey, Lord, now are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And then Jesus does this. That's what I do when I'm really annoyed. So if you ever see me doing this, then I'm really annoyed at something. Either that or I have a headache. I'll leave it to your imagination to try to decide. I got in trouble the other day because I did this to my wife and she immediately knew what I was doing and said, ah, and we had to go. And I owned it. I was like, you're right. I'm sorry. I'm right. I'm sorry. You were right. So Jesus 
is not going to lead them the way Moses did, right? Moses leads them out of Egypt to throw off the shackles of the power and the authority of the Egyptian empire. Jesus is not there to try to lead them to throw off the shackles of the Roman Empire. Jesus is going there. He's doing all of this, which is going to culminate with his death and resurrection, to throw off the, sh the greater shackles that bind every single person. Not just the shackles of the Jews that were, that were occupied by Rome, but he's going to throw off the shackles of every human person because we have all been enslaved to the greater power of sin and death. Now, then we get the second part of the reading uh, with the sea. So Jesus gets away from the crowd by going back up the mountain since he presumably came down to feed them. And he was also probably going to spend some time in prayer because we see this often in the Gospels. Where Jesus would go up a mountain and spend time in prayer alone, as was his practice. And so the disciples, they get in the boat and they begin to cross the sea. And the sea gets rough, but they're still able to make it some way across, but they're still struggling. And then they see something that freaks them out. Jesus is walking on the sea towards them. And then he says something interesting. It is I. Don't be afraid. And it's interesting here in John's account, he doesn't get inside the boat. It says that they were eager to get him into the boat, but it doesn't actually say he got in the boat because as they are eager to have him come in the boat, they find themselves on the other side of the sea at their destination miraculously. And this probably would have reminded them of this verse from the book of Job, chapter 9, verse 8, that refers to Yahweh, God, who alone stretched out the heavens and tramples, or you could say who treads or walks, Upon the waves of the sea. So, there's a lot to take away from these passages. A lot. And thank you for bearing with me this morning. These sermons might run just a little bit longer, so I'm just preparing you in advance. So, we're going to narrow it down to a couple of things. But before we do that, I just want to take a second to talk about one little thing. So we believe that God has a purpose. Or we could say God has a telos. And that's a fancy word. It's a Greek word, which means like the goal. God has an ultimate goal in mind. And we, I preached on this actually a few weeks ago. It was a sermon called The Plan. That God's plan, God's goal, the telos for which all things were created was so that everything could be united with God through Christ. And these signs that Jesus performs points to the fact that the kingdom of God is coming. And when the kingdom of God is finally here and full, all everything will be consummated. And St. Paul says that Christ will fill all in all. And that is the goal we are going to. And we try to get to that goal sometimes through means that aren't quite helpful. But the signs that we see here, the walking on the sea and the bread, point towards that, 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 that coming union with God. Particularly, we're going to see about the bread of life. So, this whole chapter, John chapter 6, it's going to end with a rift between Jesus and some of his disciples. 
which results actually in many of his disciples turning away from him. The 12 don't turn away from him. Sometimes we think that it was just Jesus and the 12 disciples, and they were just walking by themselves everywhere. No, 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 no. There were at least another 70. And then on top of those 70, there were other people that would follow. And on top of that, there were crowds that would follow. So Jesus is always surrounded by groups of people. A large portion of them are his disciples, but there's some other followers too. When Jesus, at the end of John 6, says the things that he's going to say, a bunch of the people who are following him, they're going to say, I can't handle this. This is too tough. I'm leaving. And a bunch of his own disciples leave him. And then Jesus turns to the 12 and he's like, what about you guys? And Peter says, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And sometimes we forget, right? We think that We think that Jesus never did or said anything uncontroversial. We, never, we, we think that Jesus never said or did anything that would cause people to react negatively, negatively. Because we have this false picture of Jesus in our mind that he was nice all the time, that he was meek and mild all the time, that he was kind of like a pushover and just let things happen to him all the time, that he wasn't really in charge of his own destiny or his own life, that he just sort of let him, like, was pulled around by whoever did whatever, just affirmed whatever. That's not the Jesus of the scriptures. Anyway, so in the story of the loaves and fishes, there's a bunch of symbolism here. So the, the church fathers reflecting on this, they see the five loaves as the five books of Moses, right? The Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. If you didn't know that, let's, we'll do some catechesis. And then the two fishes, they took that as the book of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the epistle book from everything from uh, 1 Corinthians all the way through Revelation. Or, sorry, 1 Corinthians, Romans through, uh, through Revelation. I mean, and this makes sense, right? And, and St. Augustine also, he makes the point that the five loaves, the story says that they were barley loaves. And so barley is unrefined. So to get to that, that kernel of the barley, you have to do some work to get to it before you can use it. And in the story of them struggling in the sea, St. Cyril of Alexandria says that Christ does not come to us when our tribulations begin, but when our fear is at its height. And the danger show itself to be great when we are found to, to say in the way, and when we are found in the waves of affliction. Then Christ appears unexpectedly and removes our fear and frees us from all danger. By his ineffable power, he changes horror to joy and, as it were, calms the storm. But I want to focus on the breaking of the bread and the distribution of it. So Jesus, before he gives the bread, what does he do? He gives thanks. And that word for giving thanks is the Greek word Eucharist. Eucharistesas uh, in, in, in this passage, which is where we get the word Eucharist, which is what, another name for what we call Holy Communion. After he gives thanks, he gives the bread to the gathered people, nourishing them, strengthening them. And it doesn't record this in John, but in, in the Gospel of Mark, it says that Jesus also taught the people. So in that sense, he was also feeding them his words, the words of God, which also bring nourishment to them. And notice that this multiplication only happens after he gives thanks. 
And then let's think about the words to the disciples in the boat. We saw the portion from Job that says Yahweh, that God treads or walks upon the sea, the waves of the sea. And we heard Jesus' words to them, it is I, do not be afraid. So now think back to your Old Testament lessons. Whenever anybody in the Old Testament met with God, what do they get told all the time? When God appears to somebody, they think they're going to die, so what does God tell them? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Jesus says, when they encounter him on the waves of the sea, doing what only Yahweh, what only God does, he says, don't be afraid, it is I. And that phrase, it is I, in Greek is ego I be, and if you were going to take that and translate it to Hebrew, it would be, and in English it would be what? It is I, ego I me, I am. And so thinking back again on your Old Testament lessons, who exactly is the I am in the Old Testament? Yahweh, God. Right, so this is what's called a theophany. And to make things weird, I'm going to title this serving a theophanic bread. God being revealed in bread. It's a fancy way of saying that, right? So don't ask me later. This is the theophany. Not only is he the prophet that Moses has spoken of in Deuteronomy, greater than Moses, and then even greater than Elisha, feeding the people in the wilderness, breaking the bread, giving them nourishment, He's also the one who walks on the waves of the sea. And then when they have this encounter, Jesus says, don't be afraid. It is I. I am. Now, there's some scholars who don't believe that when Jesus says that I am, that he actually has this in mind. They say, well, he was just saying, I, it's me. But, but in John's gospel, John uses that phrase in the sense I just described many times. Right? When he's about to get arrested, they said, are you Jesus? And what does Jesus say? I am. Then what happens? We get knocked to the ground. So it gets used this way in John. And so we're meant to pull from these two stories. Jesus is the prophet spoken of, referred to by Moses. But he's also God. He's also God. So people who tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God don't know the scriptures. Sorry. And they don't know the Old Testament. Sorry. Not sorry. Hashtag, I guess. And so the reason why we're going through all of this is because Jesus, throughout this gospel, is going to continue to make these connections, particularly with bread. It's this, everything is going to end up with him saying, I am the bread. And we're going to actually talk about that next week. That bread that came down from heaven that fed you in the wilderness back when Moses led you out of the children of Israel. I'm the bread of heaven. And so we see already he's starting to prefigure this here in the beginning of John chapter 6. So stay with me as we continue through this series throughout August. And, uh, and if you miss them, we podcast it too, so you can follow our podcast uh, as well.
So I'm excited about where we're going to be going. But today, also be, be encouraged. Be encouraged. Particularly in the story of them being on the sea. The interesting thing is they're struggling. They're trying to get to where they're going. And they're able actually to make it quite a good distance before Jesus comes. And sometimes when we question why like, bad things happen in our lives, we all, a lot of times we ask, where was God in it? You know, where, where, where was God? I'm struggling. But even in the midst of the struggle, Jesus, he doesn't show up and take them out of that struggle and cross the sea. While they're in the middle of their struggle, Jesus comes alongside the boat. And when he does, do not be afraid. It is I. They find themselves on the other side. And so that should give us a lot of hope for ourselves, brothers and sisters, that even in the storms of our life, even in hard times, that Christ is with us. And that Christ will strengthen us. And that Christ will lead us through to where we're supposed to be. And we'll get there as we continue to trust Him in faith. Rowing across the sea, doing what we're supposed to do. But then also by sitting at His feet and eating the divine bread that He gives us. Which is Himself. Which then helps us to fulfill the tell us, the goal that God is intending for all creation, for everything to be reunited in Him through His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom is due all glory together with His Father and the Holy Spirit. Amen.